Our second reading tonight is from 2 Thessalonians verses one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And I'm reading from the New Century Version, so it will be different to the RSV. And it begins, From Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church in Thessalonica, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always thank God for you, brothers and sisters. This is only right, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love that every one of you has for each other is increasing. So we brag about you to the other churches of God. We tell them about the way you continue to be strong and have faith, even though you are being treated badly and are suffering many troubles. This is proof that God is right in his judgment. He wants you to be counted worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. God will do what is right. He will give trouble to those who trouble you and he will give rest to you who are troubled and to us also when the Lord Jesus appears with burning fire from heaven with his powerful angels. Then he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. Those people will be punished with a destruction that continues forever. They will be kept away from the Lord and from his great power. This will happen on the day when the Lord Jesus comes to receive glory because of his holy people. And all the people who have believed will be amazed at Jesus. You will be in that group because you believed what we told you. That is why we always pray for you, asking our God to help you live the kind of life he called you to live. We pray that with his power, God will help you to do the good things you want and perform the works that come from your faith. We pray all this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will have glory in you and you will have glory in him. That glory comes from the grace of our our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who are keen gardeners will almost certainly know that the start of November marks the beginning of the season for forcing rhubarb. So I'm told, I read it on the Gardener's World website, you'll know that I'm no gardener myself. I'm putting my trust in the word of so-called experts here. But the principle, insofar as I can understand it, is if you deprive rhubarb crowns of light, that makes them grow longer as they naturally shoot up looking for the light. And in the case of rhubarb, this actually makes it more succulent and better tasting. And rhubarb is unique in that respect for being better, for being forced. It makes rhubarb grow naturally, rhubarb grow more quickly than it would normally do if you force it, apparently. In the opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul, if it was Paul wrote this letter, there's some debate about that, says he's obliged to thank God for the Christians at Thessalonica because of the growth in their faith and love. And the words he uses are quite intensive when it comes to speaking about growth. Their faith has abounded, it has increased beyond measure, while their love also has grown beyond all bounds and expectations. If Paul were a gardener growing the love and the faith of the Thessalonians on his allotment, he'd be rubbing his hands with glee and getting ready to enter them into a competition. He was already boasting to anyone who would listen about how great their faith was and how well they were doing, particularly under persecution. 
And that's the point, you see. They were having a hard time of it. We don't know precisely what form the persecution they were suffering took. But just like depriving a rhubarb crown of light effectively forces its growth, in the case of those Christians at Thessalonica, it was out of their reaction to their opposition they encountered that their faith and love were growing so much, so quickly. Adversity was forcing their growth. They were prospering and growing through opposition. And that's often been the case in the history of the church. Around the start of the third century, Tertullian could say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians you kill, the more the church grows. And it did sometimes seem that the more people tried to stamp out the church, the less successful they were. In the last century, the amazing growth of the church in China is a case in point. When the communists kicked out the missionaries and closed the borders of the country and set about trying to get rid of the church in 1949, there were perhaps 700,000 Christians in the country. When the borders opened again, no one knew how many Christians there were. Today, conservative estimates put the number at 23 million. Others put it as high as 130 million. Far from disappearing under an oppressive communist rule, the church grew in faith and in numbers. And the same kind of thing happened in Thessalonica. It doesn't always work like that, of course. The 20th century also saw Christians in the Middle East declining rapidly. In Israel, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt. In Egypt, just the other week, four people, including two girls aged 8 and 12, were killed outside a church after a wedding in a drive-by shooting. And there were times in the early church when persecution decimated the church rather than forcing its growth. Yet persecution focuses the mind somewhat, if you're a Christian. You don't find people leaving the church in times of persecution because they're disillusioned with it which is why so many people have left the church in the UK in recent decades. In the case of Thessalonica, the the opposition they encountered served to draw them together and helped unite them in standing up together and supporting each other for the faith. It made them strong. Opposition does create more clearly defined boundaries between the church and the world in some ways. In the UK, lots of people who never go to church, would call themselves Christians. And church attendance can become quite sporadic amongst those who would call themselves committed Christians. It's hard sometimes to say, well, that person, yeah, that person ticks all the boxes when you look at what you'd expect of a Christian, and and that person doesn't. It's not very clear, black and white. It is several shades of grey where you're trying to define who's in the church, who's a committed Christian, and who isn't. In situations of persecution, attachment to a church and having a faith become a lot more costly. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be committed. You need to know it's going to be costly, and that makes it much more of an investment of time and commitment and cost and risk. People who are Christians in situations of persecution tend to have a stronger faith. And public opinion becomes much more polarised as well. Either you're for the Christians or against them. They're not kind of under the radar, they're high profile. Everybody knows about the Christians, they're those people who are having a hard time of it. Are you for them or against them? Do you belong or do you not? Faith can be seen more in terms of a clear distinction between black and white, white rather than an all-pervasive grey. 
even though in context of persecution still it's impossible to judge the number of people who are secret believers in Jesus. The church is always bigger than it appears. But this kind of polarisation was going on in Thessalonica. And because it was, the letter talks about suffering being a sign of God's righteous judgment. Because in that context, if you belong to the kingdom of God, the odds were that you were paying some kind of price for having a faith in Jesus. Experiencing opposition was part and parcel of belonging to God's kingdom. And in that context as well, there came, or tended to come, a heightened expectation that God would step in and sort everything out before things went too far. When Jesus came back, those believers who were being troubled on account of their faith would be relieved, whereas those who were causing the trouble would have a taste of their own medicine and be troubled themselves. When Jesus was revealed from heaven in blazing fire in the company of powerful angels, those who did not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ would be punished. In situations of persecution, you often get a heightened expectation of the fate of those who aren't Christians. Those who had ostracised Christians, those who had cut Christians out, would find themselves ostracised and excluded from God's glorious presence. Those who had made Christians suffer for a while would undergo a punishment for themselves that would last for eternity. Traditionally, this has been understood in terms of eternal conscious torment in hell. There are those who argue instead that the language refers to the final and irreversible nature of their exclusion from the presence of God. But whatever form the punishment takes, it is final and eternal and irreversible. What's clear is that the return of Jesus entails judgment. A clear separation, a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. A clear line is drawn between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. And once those lines are drawn, they cannot be rubbed out or redrawn once the judgment has happened. And in a situation of persecution, it's relatively easy to see where those lines come because it's quite apparent who is for Jesus and who is against him. And Paul makes it quite clear that the judgment entails that those who reject Christ now will be rejected by him then, whereas those who hold on to their faith will marvel at Jesus' glory as he comes to rescue those who believe in him. But that hadn't happened yet. And despite the way in which the intensity of the opposition gave rise to an expectation that Jesus had to come very soon because the distinction between the righteous and the wicked was so clear-cut and the time was clearly ripe for judgment and for him to come and rescue his people, the expected deliverance and the vindication of the church and the judgment of their enemies didn't really materialise. And so the idea began to circulate. Some were even wondering whether the day of the Lord had happened already somehow, and, and somehow they'd missed it. People weren't quite sure where they stood in relation to the, the coming again of Jesus. And, and people wonder how that could possibly be the case. How could people begin to wonder, you know, how could you think that Jesus had come and you'd missed it somehow? And it's all wrapped up with, with what Paul says in chapter 2 about, you know, the rebellion has to happen first 
before Christ comes back again. And there's a big debate about what, what that rebellion might mean, whether it's a kind of worldwide turning against God and a rejection of his authority, whether it's Israel rebelling against and rejecting the law of God, whether it's just a period of worldwide anarchy. Some have said it might be the kind of rapture, the Christians being taken up to heaven. Others have said, and I think there's mileage in this, it might be a reference to, to the Jewish rebellion against Rome, the Jewish war. And Josephus uses the same word about the rebellion that the Jews instigated against Rome. Paul might be speaking prophetically here. Others would say, well, this is an indication that the letter was written after AD 70. But you see, if you read Matthew and Mark's Gospel, quite clearly the return of Jesus is closely linked with the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish one from the other. And in a situation where perhaps the Temple had fallen, people might think, well, surely... Wasn't there talk about Jesus coming back and the same kind of thing? And if that event has happened, have we somehow missed the return of Jesus? Questions arising in people's minds. And the letter here makes it quite clear. You know, look, if you understand what is going on, the rebellion, as in the rebellion against Rome, has to happen first. And then the man of lawlessness will come and he will be destroyed and then Jesus will return. Don't get uptight, wondering and worrying and fretting that, that Jesus hasn't come back yet and you might have missed it. God's timetable is still in place. If you're not aware of it having happened yet, it's because it hasn't happened yet. Jesus himself said he didn't know precisely when it would happen. Firstly, the revolt has to happen and the Antichrist has to be revealed. Then Jesus will come and the judgment will take place and it will be clear cut. There will be the distinction drawn between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. And there has been, both in the early years of the church and down through the ages since, because it's 2,000 years now, a tendency to, to demythologize, to spiritualize, to explain away the second coming of Christ, to put it on the back burner and to sideline it. But 2 Thessalonians says, no, you know, it hasn't happened yet, admittedly, but it will happen. What has to happen will take place and Christ will return. And it will be a definitive final judgment and the world as we know it will end. So 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians holds out against any attempt to explain away or downplay the promised return of Christ, saying simply that in accordance with God's plan, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. And the letter holds out the real prospect of Jesus returning in power and glory to rescue and vindicate his people and judge those who were opposed to them. It's part and parcel of the message of Jesus, part and parcel of the New Testament. And if we are tempted sometimes to ignore it or downplay its significance, that is perhaps a measure of the extent to which we are far too comfortable in a world where the majority of people are aching and sighing and longing for the kingdom of God because there is so much wrong with the world in which we live. There is too much injustice and pain and suffering. And if we want to put off the return of Jesus because things are going very nicely for us, thank you, then there's a sense in which we haven't taken on board in our hearts God's burden for a world where so much is wrong. Even after 2,000 years, far longer than Paul or anyone else in the first century could ever have imagined, 
the promise of Jesus' return holds true and the need for Jesus' return to set right what is wrong remains as desperate as ever. We here in Horsham in the 21st century live in a culture where we don't experience too much opposition. And in this kind of context, the lines between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not may not be immediately apparent to us, though Jesus himself obviously can clearly tell who belongs to him and those who don't. But 2 Thessalonians does give us a clear understanding of where that line will be drawn on Jesus' return. It is those who do not know God, it is those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus who will be punished. Correspondingly, it is those who obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus and those who have put their faith in Christ and who know God through that faith, who hold on to that faith through thick and thin and persevere through tough times so that their faith grows, they are the ones who are welcomed into the glorious presence of Christ on his return. They are the ones who are counted worthy of the kingdom of God. When Christ returns, the lines are drawn and there is no crossing over, no changing our mind at that point. So now, now is the time to be making the decision. What is my response to Christ? Am I prepared to believe or not? Am I willing to count the cost or not? Am I willing to persevere if things get difficult, as there is every expectation that they can and may do, or not? Will I commit my life to Christ, whatever happens, or not? Being a Christian is not an accident of birth. It's not a matter of being born in the UK as opposed to some other country. Being a Christian is a decision that confronts us all. If you have not yet decided to be a follower of Jesus, the decision lies before you and only you can take it. Will you believe in him or not? Will you be one who looks forward to and welcomes his return or not? Will you stand with God's people or not? The lines will be drawn. Only you can decide which side you'll be standing on. Let's pray. Lord, we are conscious of our sense of comfort and security in this country compared to the danger and the threat of violence and the fear that has been a reality for so many people in other parts of the world who've gathered to worship, if they have been able to do so. We thank you for those who tonight have held on to their faith, whose love and faith have been strengthened because they've stayed committed to you despite opposition and trouble. Be their deliverer. And Lord, in our comfort and our ease, 
may we never become complacent. Help us to use the time that we have to choose. And help us, while things are going well, to put our roots deep down into you. To put all our trust in you. To build up our resources of love. So that if and when things go wrong, we might stand firm. That we might hold to the decision that we've made. Thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you for your patience with us. For those who are still wondering whether to take the step of faith and commitment to you or not, draw them to yourself. Create faith and understanding and a readiness to say, Jesus is Lord, in their hearts and in their minds. Have mercy on us, Lord, and give us grace to make that declaration now in times of adversity and on the occasion of your return, whenever that is. For we ask it for your name's sake.